Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Can We Talk For Real? Block Talk Radio Show. Uh, welcome, this is Terry out of Chicago. So, usually we do a little talking about what's going on uh, in the world, but tonight I really want to kind of get into the show um, because it's a topic that is talked about probably more so behind closed doors. Um, and, and people hesitate to talk about it uh, because it affects a lot of us, um, not just the LGBT community, not just single people, not just married people. Uh, no race is excluded. Um, and the guest tonight, we're going to actually look at it in a different way, um, not the way that uh, most people look at it, which is just talking about you know what happens in families, but we're going to talk about uh, suicide prevention. So tonight I'm happy to have um, Sean Connolly from the American Foundation for Suicide um, Prevention on our show. So before I bring him in, I want to do our disclaimer, which is the views and opinions expressed on Can We Talk For Real, Block Talk Radio Show host, co-host, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. Um, we do not condone disrespect to our host, our co-host, our uh, topics, or our guest. We do appreciate the fact that you are openly expressing your opinion, um, and we appreciate the fact that you are joining us. Uh, the host or co-host are not counselors and advise you to seek professional consultation if needed. Um, with that being said, I'd like to bring on Sean. Hey, how are you? Hey, how are you? I'm doing good. good. How's it going this evening? It's going good this evening. So, just wanted to, um, you know, talk to you a little bit about. Before we get started, wanted you to kind of introduce yourself to everybody um, that's listening to our listening audience. Who are you? Where you're from? What you do? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually. I live in Chicago now, and I've been here in the city for uh, eight years, and. I got involved with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention in 2013 with our Illinois chapter here. Um, I actually lost my sister, Alex, to suicide in 2013. I got involved with the group. Uh, first, is just a survivor of suicide, just looking for somewhere to go, kind of to start figuring out what to do next, how to kind of pick up everything and, and figure out what to do. And from there, I've uh, I've worked with the organization for about three years now. Uh, I'm the current co-chair of our LGBTQ committee for the state of Illinois, and I'm a legislative field advocate uh, for the state and federal level with the foundation. Um, so I kind of advocate broadly just to have these kind of conversations and discussions about suicide prevention, what can be done, kind of what uh, how suicide is preventable. I think defining it that way is new for a lot of people, that there are actions and tangible ways that we can get in front of these sorts of problems. And then trying to encourage uh, conversations about how to, if you will, uh, seek seek whatever uh, care or attention, uh, medically or otherwise, that you need in the same way that you seek physical attention or care. That's been a big cause of mine for the last three years. So it's been a really interesting time. I've had a lot of great conversations. I really appreciate you having me on tonight. Definitely, we definitely definitely appreciate having you on tonight. So, Sean, we actually talked a little bit earlier, and a lot of the things that you, we talked about is information that I want to get out to our listening audience. Um, so let's kind of dive in. Um, do 
do you are you okay with telling your sister's story real quickly or Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so what happened there was my sister was actually, she was living in, uh, Nashville. Uh, it was a couple weeks before her 29th birthday. And we had, as a family, we had always talked about, uh, she had struggled with, uh, bipolar disorder. And then she also had, uh, bulimia and she moved around and she was my older, she is my older sister. And, you know, it was one of those things where it was extremely challenging for her to get consistent and steady, uh, medical help as needed, uh, partly because it was complicated with the insurance, partly because it was just an overwhelming process. Um, and so a couple weeks before her 29th birthday, uh, she took her own life and uh, she shot herself in her apartment there in Nashville. And I never will forget that phone call here in Chicago and having to fly down and kind of figure out what to do there. I mean, it's really been a devastating impact on not just me and not just on Alex, but on my family, on everyone that cared about her. We've all really changed, and, and that's a common theme for story uh, for people who have lost loved ones to suicide or anyone that they were close to. I mean, it really, really has a major ripple effect in the networks of the people who we lose, um, and that's a major area where the foundation does a lot of work. Is not just trying to help those people who have suicidal ideation, but also trying to help people who are kind of left behind afterwards and trying to help them. Is it, it provides a significant amount of, of stress to normal systems. It can be extremely complicated in what to do. It's a very unique situation, a unique kind of loss. So the foundation is really great at providing uh, resources such as like International Suicide Survivor Day in November. Um, that's good for anyone that has lost anyone or is struggling with things like that. On top of all of the research, education, advocacy work that they're doing on, the, on behalf of trying to figure out like, what is going on with suicide. How do we prevent it? How do we get in front of it? Um, what systems, what do we know scientifically, what evidence-based research and uh, solutions can we apply and scale up for uh, the entire country so that everyone has access to the same systems. So that's really been a driving force in my life for the last three years, ever since I lost Alex, was to try to work on this so that no one else ever has to go through this feeling of not knowing where to turn for help and, and when you hit a state of crisis, thinking that that's the only solution is to take your own life or to die by suicide. And one of the reasons, too, why I did, you know, I, I was more am, wanting to think, saying that I wanted to have this type of a show tonight um, at this time is because we have a couple of things going on. You have kids who are going back to school who may over the summertime, you know, uh, per se kind of maybe found themselves, as people would say, or know their, not know their identity of, you know, how they live or how they want to live, uh, their own truth. Um, who are going back to school to kids who are their friends or were their friends, are their associates, uh, relatives, not knowing how to actually come out. Um, and, or those who are going back reluctantly because they have come out and they've been exposed to being bullied and, and things like that. Also, because this is the last holiday coming up, which is Labor Day. Then we go into the holidays where I think a lot of people get lonely, they feel by themselves, they don't have anyone. Um, and not only that, you know, the weather changes. And when I was thinking, they say there's people who, when it gets the winter time, they get more depressed because it's darker. So I thought this would be an opportune time to bring this topic to, to the forefront. But not only that, because I hadn't heard of a foundation for suicide prevention before. Right, and, and it's an interesting time. Um, suicide is actually currently, you know, it's the 10th leading cause of death in the country. It, it's, it 
affects roughly 43,000 Americans every year are dying by suicide. Uh, second leading cause of death for everyone under the age of 44. And insofar as there's an issue with the LGBTQ population, I mean, we have as a community a unique set of risk factors because of what you described. We're more susceptible to bullying. We are the process of having to come out to yourself and accept yourself and then finding love in your community, sometimes having to make new relationships, et cetera, without having a necessary mental illness or anything like that, it can still cause a ton of stress-related factors that can lead to suicide risk. Um, and it is extremely important that people know to look for risk factors right now. And when, you, when you're talking, if you're a parent talking to your child and they're in a, in a weird situation, the behavior makes drastic changes or they talk about suicide or they talk about drastic changes in their emotional states, et cetera, it's important that you listen, talk to them, and then you encourage care with an actual professional. It's uh, a major goal of ours that there be full parity in mental and physical health care. And so take these things no different than if your child was talking about or your loved one or your friend or yourself was talking about, oh, I have this weird pain in my chest and I just don't know what to do about it. We don't tend to take those things lightly anymore. It's an exact same thing with mental health. And, and with LGBTQ, especially youth, there's, there's a significant uh, amount of unique risk factors. And so anyone looking out there as they go on to either back to high school, back to college, back to wherever, um, you know, for parents, PFLAG is a great organization. If you're in high school, Gleason is awesome, G-L-F-E-N. Uh, they do a lot of advocacy work, bullying. The Trevor Project is, is a fantastic suicide prevention foundation geared directly at uh, LGBTQ uh, youth under the age of 24. Many campuses have advocate programs for students, and that can be a really safe and a caring community for college students that are going out. And the foundation here, we have chapters in every state across the country, and every single chapter is trying to have some sort of uh, LGBTQ plus suicide uh, conference or session or something to, to generate a conversation about the unique risk factors in our state. So here in Illinois, we're doing ours in April, and we're partnering up with uh, an institute for sexual and gender minority health at Northwestern to have a full weekend of talking and discussion about what research is getting done and what questions are still being asked about broadly LGBTQ suicide risk and mental health care problems. So you talk about prevention. Now, and I guess in a way that just says to me that there is there are definite signs, ways, methods to prevent um, someone that you love from possibly committing suicide. Now, it's also always said that if they want to do it, it's going to happen. But what are the... What are the measures that people can look for? What are the things that they can do to kind of help possibly prevent, you know, the suicide from occurring? Right. Um, it's an interesting situation. And, and um, you know, for, so for every single suicide that is completed successfully, 25 other uh, people have attempted uh, to die by suicide. And so when we look into it, we're looking at research insofar as what is actually going on in the brain, et cetera. And what we've come out with is that in where we are currently is that 9 out of 10 people who die by suicide have a diagnosable mental health condition contributing to their death. So it is important to take mental health care seriously. I mean, that's that's really the first thing. So if someone says, you know, I mean, making light of bipolar disorder, for instance, because someone can't make up their mind, or, well, that person just needs to get out of it, just be happy. They need to stop that. Uh, those sorts of thought processes are, can be really dangerous, and we, we really encourage people to think about it in the exact same way that they do think about uh, their physical health. 
It is true also that people who survive a suicide attempt, and it's the overwhelming majority, will not go on to complete a suicide. They will not go on to die by suicide if you survive uh, a suicide attempt. So when it goes into this, we have to remember that these people are in a crisis point at the point that they're really legitimately considering suicide. So a lot of people have these conditions that are long-term, but it's just in the moment of crisis that they have the actual intent to end their life. So when we talk about uh, uh, means restriction is a major idea, successful interventions and things like that. We're looking for biomarkers in people to understand what's going on and who maybe is or is at a higher risk. And a lot of this just comes from simple talking to your family, talking to your loved ones, et cetera, and things like that. But when it comes to some of the more systemic ways that we can do this, I mean, we do have a, a gap in treatment across the country right now. It's a, a frustration of mine on a weekly basis when I try to – people call me or they call other people in the group, and it's, it's you know, I've got a friend I'm worried about. What do I do? It's not exactly simple to direct that person into service because we don't have an effective uh, mental health care infrastructure in this country right now to serve the health needs of the country in the same way that we serve uh, physical health. So we want to make sure that we limit access to means as well. So, uh, you know, you'll see our work on barriers for bridges. We want blister packaging for pills and medication so that you can't just take an entire handful, et cetera, that you have to pop them out individually. We want smart and responsible uh, firearm safety registration in all 50 states. Um, many of suicides are completed with firearms, and that's a major problem because in that crisis moment, just like my sister, when you pull the trigger, there's no going back. There's no getting to that point where you're the 90% of people who don't buy, die by suicide. So it's really trying to change that dialogue. And in a lot of ways, we have a lot of effective research done, and it's just a matter of really matching the funding with the size of the problem. Um, you know, if you look at what's happened in the last 10 years in this country, we spent $1.2 billion in heart disease, and we've seen the mortality rate go down by 29% since 2003. Suicide prevention, the mortality rate since 2003 is up 20%. Suicides are up 20%, and we still have seen no increase in spending. Aside, we are $37 million for the entire country as a federal government. So we do believe that one major area where we need to focus on is increased funding to bend the mortality curve down. And we see that across every major health care issue, and we really think suicide is the next one that we need to start taking seriously and addressing as preventable and changing people's kind of complacency with, oh, well, if they didn't die by suicide today, it was only a matter of time. That's a very dangerous and, and very defeatist attitude that we really want people to understand, that it is preventable and that there, there is effective treatment and that we learn more every day. And we're funding research across the board that's extremely exciting provides a lot of hope to a lot of people, and we are learning how to prevent this. Now it's just a matter of getting us to scale so that everyone can actually be able to access the health care that they need. Okay. All right. So you talk about the legislative efforts. Um, let's mm-hmm. talk about Illinois. Is there anything particular that's actually happening here in Illinois um, so the the big win in the state of Illinois, and this is actually specific to LGBTQ plus populations here too, is uh, it was Representative Cassidy's bill, and it had to go for two years uh, when we outlawed, and it actually got signed by Governor Rauner to uh, last year. The, the the banning of conversion therapy in this state was a huge win for mental health care advocates, suicide prevention advocates, and LGBTQ advocates across the board. So that's an example of a piece of legislation that we really, really, really targeted. We wanted to help support, and we were really, really thrilled with it getting through. Currently at the state level in Illinois, in all honesty, there's not that much moving. 
um, everything is tied up with the budget cuts. And so our budget stalemate more or less. And what we would like to see is increased funding for mental health care, uh, just even basic infrastructure in the state. The state of Illinois has uh, nearly half to a majority of their counties don't have a full-time mental health care practitioner going on in the state. We were telling people that in D.C. in June, and it's a really alarming stat. So even if you're ready to uh, accept that you have uh, a need for treatment, and that can be sometimes a very difficult conversation at the point that you're ready to go seek treatment, even that can be extremely challenging. And that's a common frustration amongst many of us who have either struggled with suicidal ideation, mental health care problems, or have had loved ones who have, is that even when they're ready to go get help, they can't find it. They can't get to it. So in the city of Chicago, it may be a little bit easier, but in downstate Illinois, in rural counties, it can be extremely challenging. That's kind of the story across the country as well, and Illinois is certainly no different. Hmm. So... Can you tell us, you know, kind of like we talked a little bit about um, the statistics, so can you kind of give us maybe a couple national compared to Illinois? Um, and I, I know you're going to give us a link, you know, on our Facebook page for us to give for other folks if they want to, you know, go state by state because I know everybody that listens to us are not, you know, they're not from Illinois. We have Michigan, California. So, but for right now, is there numbers that you can kind of give us? Yeah, let me just pull them up here really quick. Sorry about that. Um, it's an interesting thing, and I'll provide these links, uh, one for the national statistics and then for every state across the country as well. Let me just find here our state fact sheet. It's an interesting issue across the board. Um, so for Illinois, for instance, suicide is the 11th uh, leading cause of death overall in our state. Uh, this is... We're the 44th ranked state across the board for suicide rates. So nationally, we have 42,773 people dying by suicide every year. Illinois makes up 1,300, or right about 1,400 suicides a year. So for us, it's the second leading cause of death for ages 10 to 14, second leading cause of death for ages 15 to 34, third leading cause of death for 15 to 24-year-olds. Um, we again see that sort of trend younger in our state, which is extremely problematic. Um, almost twice as many people die by suicide in Illinois annually than by homicide. Uh, that's extremely uh, alarming to us and I think to most people in the state. And it really boils down back to smart policy like Representative Cassidy's that, that do, do not isolate people, that, that give people a chance to be themselves and be equal and then a chance to create avenues for people to go seek the help that they need. So annually speaking, we're dealing with quite a bit more suicide. And you see across the board, different states have different risk factors all over the place. So out Utah has a very uniquely high problem for some reason. That state is pumping a lot of time and energy into it. And other states can kind of watch and learn that maybe it's not as much of an epidemic or as much of a rampant problem. But as Utah takes lead on some state legislature, legislation and policy and new initiatives and new systems, we're hoping that we'll be able to transfer some of that to the rest of the country. Uh, that entire section of the country has the West Coast and kind of that inner first line of states off of the West Coast has an alarmingly high suicide rate as well for some reason. Wow. So is you, it you also see in uh, relation to LGBTQ issues, and that's what we're working on here, I should mention that in policy, in Illinois, we are somewhat lucky because we don't tend to have uh, uh, 
our policy issues are fighting for banning conversion therapy. Uh, in states like North Carolina that have passed what can be defined as transphobic laws are things that stoke up transphobia or homophobia in a lot of states. Uh, you know, in, in North Carolina, since the passing of uh, the bathroom bill there, uh, it's led to, according to the Trans Lifeline, which is a 24-hour crisis hotline for transgender people, their 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 call volume from the state doubled after that. And so we know that the kind of policy and that those kind of political that kind of political rhetoric and public rhetoric really does have an issue. Uh, creates a pretty big issue for for our populations across the board, and we're really really trying to not necessarily target those, but we would hope that we'll get beyond that soon because anything that creates an isolating factor is not good for people. Are you finding um, that more and more people or organizations are talking about suicide or is it still one of those topics that, you know, people it's got to be pulled out of folks? You know, it's an interesting thing. Um, I think personally, that's really the best way I can answer this. Um, personally, it, it, it's something that has come such a part of my daily dialogue that it's I have not noticed that people are not willing to talk about it. Um, but that doesn't mean that I do think it's still somewhat taboo. And I, I think we not only struggle with talking about suicide, but when we talk about mental health in this country, um, I think we have a hard time going beyond just a surface level understanding. And I think it is changing. I do think it's getting better. I don't think you have a generation of people where you have, it's quite as, it's not a shameful thing to lose someone to suicide in your family anymore. I don't know that we're fully there, but I think more willing people are willing to talk about how did your loved one die? They died by suicide. This is what we can do to change that fact. This is what we can do to prevent another person from losing that, having the same pain, having the same issue, having another life cut short. Um, within the gay community in Chicago and the LGBTQ community here, I mean, I think there's certainly a lot of interest. In the, I've been the co-chair for our committee in the state for the last year, and I will say that I think that there's a legitimate uh, understanding of both the youth and the non-youth angle on uh, LGBTQ-specific risk factors for suicide. And I think you see that with the It Gets Better campaign, with the anti-bullying efforts. Uh, I think that the conversation is strong in the LGBTQ population amongst the change agents about suicide and mental health. I couldn't necessarily speak for uh, outside of Chicago very well because my, my focus is pretty narrow here, but there's certainly a lot of encouraging factors that are going on right now, yeah. Good, good. So now I understand that you also um, work with Chicago Land Out of the Darkness, uh, the community walk. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I can, yeah. Um, so in the state of Illinois and across the country, actually, uh, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention hosts community, we call them out-of-the-darkness community walks. So Chicago, we have dozens of these walks. Or in Illinois, we have dozens of these walks from Chicago to East St. Louis, up and down the state. The Chicago Land Walk is the largest walk in the state, and for the last few years, it's been the largest walk in the country. Um, it's actually the largest single suicide prevention event in the country every year. So we have a route five to 6,000 walkers come to Grant Park. This year, it's in October. Um, let me look up the exact date. I should have that in front of me. But it's in October, and what we do is we come together as a network of both support for anyone that has struggled. We usually have terms such as, like, survivors of suicide. 
which is a term for anyone who's lost a loved one to suicide. And there's people with lived experience. So that maybe is anyone who's had an attempt or has had extreme suicidal ideation and things like that. We all come together to remember that we are loved and that there's a network of, of care and compassion for each other and that we're stronger together and that we can have a major voice. Um, it also really exposes a lot of people. You see a lot of professional groups in the medical community and other places come together and walk in this thing, and this helps keep us as a top priority bulls radar as, as we go through this. It's, it's a pretty impressive scene, and so this year it's going to be – we do it at Avery Field, which is on the south side of Grant Park. It's uh, October 15th at 9 a.m., and so in this, we're all we're all raising funds. We're raising awareness. Um, it raises quite a bit. Last year, we raised uh, north of $800,000 for suicide prevention, and where that money is going is primarily towards this research and for evidence-based solutions. The goal is to really stop talking about suicide and mental health as this sort of nebulous, well, it's an inevitability, et cetera, and really understand it and, and find the solution and find the cure in the same way that we found a cure for various other uh, public health crises in this country over the years. Perfect. So to the listening audience, I know, um, Sean, we kind of bumped heads with some of the things you have to do tonight, but just want to let the audience know he will be back, and it will be soon, so that way we can really dig deeper into what um, what they actually do. Um, you know, at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, how you can get involved, um, some of the things you can do, you know, in your own life, you know, to help. And then at that point we'll talk a little more about, you know, family history, you know, if there's, if that has anything to do with mm-hmm. anything. Um, you know, people who smoke, you know, I hear that might be, but there's certain illnesses that might contribute to certain ones that may not. But, you know, with the research that you, you guys are doing, um, maybe you can open up some of the doors and kind of, um, you know, educate people a little bit more on it, you know, on the show. So with that being said, I know you have to go, but is there anything that you want to leave the listening audience with um, in anticipation of you coming back? Sure, and I appreciate the invitation back, and this has been really, really nice. Um, For anybody listening out there, this is our typical pitch. I mean, we really – my number one goal would be is that, you know, Listen and, and, and pay attention to your loved ones. And, and if you think someone is in a crisis mode, even without formal training, you don't necessarily need to get online and learn exactly how to assess the person. If the person is acting off, if the person just doesn't feel right, your gut is telling you that they need help, call sooner rather than later. Reach out to that person. Stay with that person. If they seem like they're in a legitimate crisis, stay with them until you get them help. The suicide prevention hotline, if you Google it, it comes right up. I encourage that number to be on everyone's minds, and I encourage anybody that's out there who feels totally isolated and alone. And, and in the LGBTQ community, this is for anyone in the city or in rural parts of, of the state of Illinois or anywhere in the country. You know, it's true. If you just hang in there and if you find someone that you can trust, you know, things will get better, and there is help out there. We can get you on a path of recovery, and I really think that that's the idea here. It's that people understand this as a just health problem, and we, we break down those barriers between mental health and physical health in the way that we interact with the system. I think that that's really a major point, and I really believe that, that for anyone that's worried about anybody else or that wants to help slow down and hopefully one day completely wipe out suicide in this country, you know, it's be the voice for that person. You know, be the listening ear that they need. Be the advocate. Be the friend. You know, go 
go to them and, and help those people out, and, and you'll be surprised at the major impact that will have, more than anything we can do as we're slowly but surely fighting for a national mental health care infrastructure in this country and for a crisis infrastructure that can catch people who, who even if they just their mental health care issue of the day is just they've just been stressed out. They just haven't had it. Something's been going wrong. They lost a loved one they don't know how to deal with. They got rejected by their family after they came out of the closet. Any number of other things that can go on. It doesn't necessarily have to mean they have clinical depression to have a mental health care problem that needs a safety net to catch them. As we keep going through that fight, the best way to help is to volunteer with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention or any other group that speaks towards that mission. And just listen. Pay attention and, and reach out when you think someone needs help. And trust me, it's better to call than not to call. And I think anybody who's lost a loved one to suicide can tell you that same thing. You know, a lot of us have spoken to the loved ones right before they passed away. And, and it, you know, for many of us, we have a lot of regret at not, at not making that final call. And I think reducing the stigma starts at the grassroots level with all of us just being able to talk about it and really just having open and honest conversations. I think this show is a great way to start that. I appreciate it. Definitely appreciate it. We definitely appreciate you coming on with us. And what we're going to do is kind of switch um, – Wheels a little bit. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Um, now we're going to switch, and the show is going to take a personal uh, spin because we're going to talk to a father uh, who lost his son, and he's a volunteer you know, at the American um, Suicide Prevention um, Foundation. So he volunteers, and he talks about you know, his son, and he talks to people about ways to, um, you know, not just to cope, but things to not only just to look for, but things that you may feel and you may be feeling and not knowing um, that you're feeling it being a parent. Um, you know, the, the signs that maybe he saw and, and didn't see. Um, but he also does a presentation. So we're going to kind of talk a little bit through that presentation with him tonight um, on you know, suicide. So, actually, I want to bring Eric on. Um, so, Eric, are you there? Okay. And you might have to hold on a second because my system is doing what it did last week. <laughs> so please hold on for us while we bring him on. But, um, and, and while we're doing that, I really just want to tell you a little bit um, about about him. Um, he is a father. He does live here uh, in the Chicago area. And his family, um, you know, is they're involved so in the in the area of uh, working with parents, uh, working with students, uh, working with people. Period. To bring an understanding, you know, to the community about the suicide. Um, I wouldn't want to call it epidemic, but I will call it that it is something that is heartfelt. It is something that affects more than just a, a handful. So, Eric, are you with us? Yes, I am. Good evening. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, my system sometimes decides it wants to do its own its own mind. So, um, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to share 
my story and the story of my son. Okay, perfect. So uh, let's start off by telling us a little bit about you. Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. So um, my name is Eric Gatong. Um, I am married with, with uh, three children. Uh, I live in Chicago. We raised our family in Connecticut, and so I'm, we're relatively recent uh, uh, Chicagoans. Um, I work. Uh, I work in the energy industry. My my wife Nancy is um, is a middle and high school teacher. She teaches in Chicago public schools now. Um, our uh, I have a daughter Amy, or we have a daughter Amy who is uh, she lives in Toronto and she she promotes operas in Toronto. Uh, and we have a daughter Christine who is a, a clinical social worker in Boston. And I, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, to join your show tonight and and talk about our son Eric Allen. Um, we, we lost Eric Allen to, uh, I like to say, to depression and suicide, and uh, at the age of 24, um, in about about almost five years ago now. And Eric Allen was um, he he was gay and he struggled with accepting himself. He struggled with his sexuality. Um, and, and I do want to walk you through, you know, uh, some of the details of his story. Um, as you mentioned, Teresa, I, I do volunteer with uh, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and I do like to share our story and Eric Allen's story, you know, with the hope that, that uh, folks, can, folks who might be, you know, in similar positions or have friends in those positions or parents, with kids uh, who, are, who are facing these, these challenges, you know, can hear a personal story. And, and, you know, the main point here is any one of us can reach out, uh, you know, any caring person can reach out. And, and you, if you can reach out and be in the right place at the right time, you can make a difference. So that, that's, that's my reason for volunteering and, and for sharing a story like this. So introduce us um, to Eric Allen. Okay, I, I, I would like to do that. So um, what, if you don't mind, what I have uh, a sort of a little write-up of Eric Allen's story. It's, a, it's because it's, you know, it's obviously all suicide stories are tragic, and, it, and this took place over a period of about 10 years. There's a, there's a lot of detail. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. But I, I do. I, I am going to sort of read through things so I cover some some snapshots of Eric Allen's life that are that are really you know important and poignant. And and my hope is that you know folks can get sort of a feel for what he went through. Um, so you know, it's it's a story. It's like all like I said, all suicide stories are tr- tragic stories. For my wife, myself, and my daughters, uh, what remains for us is a hole in our lives and a hole in ourselves. Um, and as I said, what I, what I want to share here is a couple snapshots uh, along this 10-year journey, really. It was a 10-year a slide into pain and depression that ultimately ended in Eric Allen's death. Um, and 
when I do this, I, I sometimes like to use a that sort of describe this downward spiral in terms of a, a metaphor of a swimmer. And again, I'm hoping that in sharing this story, you know, some people can can you know re, uh, take notice, become more aware, see things in themselves, see things in their friends, see things in their family. Um, so, Eric Allen, you know, as a boy, he could not have loved life more. He was exceptionally bright, exceptionally sensitive. He excelled in school, and and he was an extremely creative um, as a boy. Uh, He had a profound sense of fairness, always worrying about how other people felt. He was also very religious, and from a very young age, he, he always kept his books ordered alphabetically, but starting from the Bible. And we'd ask him, so, so why didn't you start with A? Why did you start with B in the Bible? And his answer was, because the Bible came first. So using my metaphor, you know, in his younger years, in his pre-adolescent years, he was, he was swimming effortlessly. He was exploring the waters with joy. So... His first burden comes along with adolescence and when he realized that he was gay. Um, and I have to say to nearly everyone, it was not at all obvious, but, you know, to his parents, it was, it was not at all a surprise. Um, he fell in love with his best friend, his straight best friend, um, and he made the mistake of coming out to him. This is, you know, around about, I'll say, ninth grade. Uh, he, his friend rejected him. His friend then emailed all of their peers. Um, and he was betrayed by his best friend and then rejected by many of his peers. It was, uh, you know, traumatic, a traumatic event. So now at this point, using my metaphor, he's swimming. He's no longer swimming effortlessly, and he, and he begins to tread water. And then, you know, about the same time, uh, he's realizing that his beloved Bible and and our Catholic religion was also rejecting him. He he attempted to deny his sexuality and sort of bear the pain himself, and this was another added weight on his shoulders. And now it's even more difficult for him to tread and get by. So now fast forward a few years, um, and he calls one evening to let us know that he tested positive for HIV. And and I think back at you know when I was 19 or 20 years old and how invincible we feel at that age, and then um, and then I um, I imagine how how it feels to run into this wall of having to take meds for the rest of your life. And this is. Uh, quite a while ago now, and at that time, the prognosis was not at all certain. So yet another burden, uh, and now it's even more difficult for Eric Allen to tread to tread water and stay afloat. And then fast forward a few more years. Again, this, this, this sort of downward spiral, spiral for him lasted over 10 years, over a period of about 10 years. He starts but doesn't finish college, um, but he does find a secure job at Walgreens as a pharmacy technician. Um, 
And several years into that, he begins to imagine and document conspiracies between the pharmacists and some patients. And he keeps detailed records, and he's very confident about what's going on. He makes formal reports, and he's not believed and eventually loses his job. So this was sort of the beginning of what really were some now some mental uh mental illnesses that are are affecting him and he's you know he's now into his early 20s um in the following months he's admitted into two medical institutions uh once after spending three days in an airport and again we admitted to admitted him into uh, a chicago hospital against his will and and this is you know one of the difficult parts of this whole story is it both times there's no clear diagnosis. There's signs of schizophrenia. There's signs of depression. There's signs of delusions. Signs of personality disorder. But no clear diagnosis. And therefore, no treatment. And so it, he's essentially shown the door and left to fend for himself without any further medical help. And, uh, and, and now he's at the point where, you know, he's barely staying afloat. So not long after that, uh, uh, he, he, was, he went from Chicago to San Francisco. He spent a few weeks there, and on March 2nd of 2011, he jumped off the Bay Bridge. And uh, the autopsy indicated that he died on impact, and for him, the pain was over. So, so that's his story, and and just coming back to you know why why am I use this swimming metaphor? Uh, it, it goes to why I like to share this story, which is uh, we all know we can help someone who's treading water by throwing them a life preserver, and you know it's just relieving one of their burdens can make a difference. So, and that's you know kind of one of my messages is it it just takes one caring person being in the right place at the right time, and, and you can make a difference. So, so that's, um, that is Eric Allen's story. And I, I just, if I, the, the last thing I want to share, uh, because it sort of fits well with this and goes along with the story, is something his, his mom wrote that, that uh, it's short, that just, yep. So do you want to go ahead and read it, or do you want us to read it? Or? Yeah. No, no, I, I'll go ahead and read it. I, um, okay. So she wrote trying to trying to make sense of, um, you know, his, of what's going on here. Uh, the problem with a disorder like depression is that pleasure is simply absent. Pleasure in all ways is gone. Desire is gone. Depressed people don't like anything. Depressed people don't want to do anything. Even if something is extra, even if something extraordinary were to happen, it wouldn't matter. Nothing matters. There's no point to anything at all. Then there's the addition of pain on top of pain, pain on top of pain of the unbearable knowledge of more pain. Eric Allen wrote pages describing feelings of pain and hopelessness. Therapy and drugs did not help. People who commit the final act of suicide 
don't want to die. They want the pain to end. So that, that, that was what his mom wrote, trying to make sense out of this, and I, I just wanted to share that as well. Definitely appreciate that, definitely. So let me ask you uh, a couple of things that you, that you talked about uh, when, you, when you introduced us to Eric Allen. And one was you said that when he um, he came out and he was gay, it was as if you guys kind of knew, so it wasn't a shock to you. Yes. Well, so, I mean, I think I think most parents who, who, who would probably relate to the fact that when you're, you're raising your child from a youngster, you notice things all along the way. Um, and there was, even as, you know, even as a young child, two or three years old, um, we, we, we kind of had some suspicions just by the way, he, the various things he would like to do in, in, I don't know, organizing little plays and dancing and the costumes he would wear when he was dancing around. Um, and, and then as he got older, just the questions he would ask of us, um, it it was it, we we you know didn't know for sure, but we were not at all surprised when you know adolescence came around and it, and it be, became very clear uh, for us you know it, it, um, again it was just a surprise we we suspected it all along and um, it, and it wasn't until adolescence when he started denying it that we really had to come to terms with it. Um, and, and speak to him very directly about it. So was it, because I know you said that, you know, he had, he was denying it, and then you guys talked to him. Um, do you think it was the assurance that you still loved him, uh, he was still your son, that kind of um, made it easier for him to even tell his best friend, knowing his parents were supporting him? Well, I, you know, I I think the way it played out was before he came out to his best friend, it was not something that we discussed with him. Okay. And it was only after that and, and that we discovered the situation really by other folks, other friends telling us about it. We, we were really unaware of it, sadly, until after the fact. And then when we found out via other friends, that's you know when we approached him directly, and and initially you know he he did he did not want to admit to us that that he was gay, um, and we would try to we would try to speak to him about it, and for the longest time he he would just deny it. So tell us, how did you get involved with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention? So um, actually, the, I, I first got involved, I, I, again, sort of sadly here, that, that uh, in Chicago here, not long after we lost Eric Allen, um, I lost a soccer teammate. And that the there was a you know, a, a fairly large group of teammates and, and his and his girlfriend that 
participated in the Out of Darkness walk that that um, Sean talked about. That's October 15th of this year. So I, I joined that group in that in the walk, and that's where I learned about the American Foundation for Su- Suicide Prevention. And you know, then it was kind of a uh, a uh, a great way to to volunteer and sort of reach out to people and share this story and, and to learn more myself. So that's how that's how I got involved with it. So it, it going back to, to the family um nucleus. Did was there ever a time in those ten years um that you and your wife ever discussed or thought about um that Eric Allen might take his own life? So, so actually, there were numerous times during that journey that the the suicide came up, and at, at you know, I would say five or six times throughout that ten-year period. I'll, I'll just mention a couple of them. I mean, probably the first one was when he was still in high school, and uh, it, you know, he he he. It was something he said, or uh, that my wife just got the sense that he was thinking of harming himself, and uh, you know she took him to the hospital immediately. There was another incident where, when he did spend a year in college, and there was an incident there where um, he had written a form of a suicide note and left it on a printer. Someone picked it up. And then we got a call from the school. Um, there was a time in high school also where, you know, we, we were on high alert at this time. By the time, you know, from ninth grade through 12th grade, there was a, a lot of, it was a very difficult time for our family. There was a lot of drama. There was a lot of tension. There was a lot of uh, attempted interventions with Eric Allen. Uh, but, you know, another ex- just an example would be there's a phone call from school that he's not in school. And I, you know, was, again, high alert, concerned with what might happen. So I rushed over to the school to try to find out where he was and rushed over to within walking distance. There was an area that was a, was a uh, there was a cliff and there had been, you know, there had been reported suicides of folks jumping off the cliff, and that's where I headed to, because uh, that's what we feared. We were, we were, you know, we were afraid of the possibility. Um, and you know, th- those are those are examples of um, of where we were, you know, very tuned in to the fact that he had contemplated contemplated suicide. Now, in between those times, there were, you know. Uh, there was periods where life was completely normal and we were a close family and this was this was not you know not an issue on the surface but we were always mindful of it how about your daughters um because i know it's got to be stressful to possibly know this um were they aware um you know did you talk to them also um for them not to, to act a certain way, 
what kind of what, how did that conversation go? Well, you know, I think so. The, the two daughters, Christine was younger than Eric Allen, and Amy was older. Uh, I think the the one that was most affected uh, was Christine. Christine and Eric Allen, you know, all through their their younger years growing up together, they were like hand in glove. Uh, Eric Allen was Christine's mentor. She followed him around everywhere. They were extremely close. And even, um, you know, I, I guess there were, there's two periods of time to talk about. There's this, this, you know, during this period of time when Eric Allen is going from ninth to 12th grade in high school, again, very tense time, a lot of difficult periods, a lot of stress, a lot of drama. You know, Christine is two years younger, and she's watching all this happen. She's watching, you know, her, her beloved brother going through all these problems. There was counseling going on. Um, and we, for a period, we, we had Eric Allen um, in, in a private school that, that focused on, you know, handling difficult family situations. And, you know, Christine is only in, you know, maybe, you know, ninth grade at this time and, and she's brought into these these um I'll say therapy sessions. So she she witnessed a very you know difficult time uh during the, those years. Um and then now fast forward to to uh you know five or six years later when, when Eric Allen finally um finally did commit suicide, uh in those you know, final three years, he, he was, he really isolated himself from our family and from all of his friends. Um, but the one person he always stayed in contact with was Christine. Um, and so for her, you know, it, it, it was like for all of us, very traumatic, but I think for her it was, you know, especially difficult. And I think it had, you know, it, it was, um, had, Quite a bit to do with the fact that she is now, you know, uh, a professional clinical social worker and trying to help people in similar situations. So let's talk about a little bit about what you do um, for, uh, you know, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Because I know you say you volunteer. So tell us a little bit about what you do, um, you know, for them and for others. Okay, so I mean, it's really sort of two things. I, I, the, the, a lot of the um, volunteering will be to, to participate in various um, events. I mean, there's been a couple of um, LGBT events where we will just join the AFSP. They'll have a table there, and we'll, we'll, we'll be at the event, and we'll explain what AFSP does, much like Sean did. Reach out to people. I think. I think. Teresa, that's where I met you at, at one of those events last January. Uh, that's one thing. And then the other one is to, to, you know, when there's a, when we can, to go out and present our story and, you know, the story of our loved ones uh, to different groups, you know. Um, and it could be anything from, from uh, a church group to a, you know, a, uh, a, a group that provides uh, mental mental illness support for folks. Um, so that that's what I try to do. And now, um, 
I know that you do a PowerPoint uh, presentation, um, which before we go on, for those who came in late, um, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention um, is really the leading national not-for-profit organization, and they exclusively uh, are dedicated to understanding and preventing suicide through research, um, through education, through advocacy, and they reach out to people with mental disorders and those impacted by suicide. Now, doesn't mean it's just, you know, those who um, are survivors, you know, but they, they tend to want to do the research and education to understand, you know, what possibly happened um, to, to, to make this happen. Um, and we did have Sean on, um, from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention a little earlier. Uh, he did have another uh, appointment, but he will be back so that we can continue that conversation because, you know, he goes into detail about, you know, uh, affordable health care, about the LGBT community, about just people, um, period, who are affected by it. But we switched over to Eric because he has been touched. And, and when we met, it was at Creating Change. And when I asked you about it and you were, were open um, to talk about it, I thought that was great because we still have we still have stigma. And there's still people who are like, no, I don't want to talk about that. Or, and it affects so many. I'm not sure how many families may not have them. I think probably each family probably does have someone somewhere down the line that did commit suicide, and no one knows where to go. How did you how did you find a place to settle it? I mean, what what research did you do? Who did you talk to? What were your feelings right after? Um, yeah, so for me, I mean, I guess I can talk, talk about myself, how I dealt with it a little bit, I, and probably a little bit about how my wife dealt with it. But, you know, um, here's, one, here's one way to describe it. For me, 2011 was, was like a devastating year, um, largely because of Eric Allen. But just to sort of put things in perspective, in 2011, I lost my mother, I lost my younger sister to cancer, and then, of course, you know, we, we lost Eric Allen. And the, the, uh, losing my mother was, in, in a sense, you know, she had a long life and was loved by many people, and she did a lot of things, and it was almost a celebration of her life, and it's very understandable. And, and my younger sister, you know, she had, you know, she, she, her life was cut short by cancer. Uh, the medical community did everything they could do. She fought, the, you know, the good battle she lost, but she fought the good battle. And, and in the end, you know, it's kind of understandable. But for me, losing Eric Allen just, you know, overwhelmed everything else. It was almost as if the other deaths didn't occur. And you're just, I mean, it's devastating and, and uh, emotionally painful. But the, the thing, you know, the couple things that really uh, stand out um, is it's absolute complete loss of hope. You know, here we had, endure, we had sort of endured and, and fought for 10 years and, and tried to find solutions to, 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 and help Eric Allen and be there for him. But... You know, when, when we finally got that phone call, um, it was just the absolute loss of hope. Um, 
And then, you know, as a father, you know, the, the, the feeling is um, there's kind of this shame, you know, that, that you, I let my son down. And, and not, not that I, you know, I'm one to beat myself up over things like this, but it's just there. I mean, as a father, that's what you, you, you know, from the moment you first hold your son, you're going to protect going to protect him for the rest of his life and and um that's kind of one of the overwhelming feelings is this this shame and you know i i share that you know i i think the main point of sharing that is to say to those who have friends that might be thinking about suicide or, or have had those thoughts themselves um that that uh it, it you know it's it's important to to it's hard for, especially for children to understand what you mean, how much you mean to your parents. I mean, it's not a matter of of losing a loved one. It's a matter of losing part of yourself. And, you know, that I know depression is something that erases a lot of these sorts of thoughts, but I I like to, you know, share that, the feelings that I had uh, with anyone who's, you know, has those thoughts to, at the right moment, you know, think about those around you that you'll be leaving behind. Um, so that's kind of, you know, that, there's a snapshot of what, what it was like for me. Uh, the one thing, you know, after a suicide event, you, you read a lot of books. Uh, we, you know, we went to grief counseling. Uh, you, you talk to people. And one of the overwhelming messages you always get is it, it's grief is different for everyone. And, and, uh, you know, there's sort of, I tried to capture a little bit about how, how I felt. I think I, I just have to also, you know, along the same lines of those who are, you know, again, maybe affected by this, uh, folks in the LGBT community who, who, who have, who struggle with their relationships with their, with their parents and their siblings. Uh, you, you, can, you can never underestimate the love of a mother. I think for all the things that I felt, they again, I think, pale in comparison to the loss my wife felt, and you know she has struggled greatly in the last five years. Um, grief counseling. She's continued to do grief counseling. She buries herself in her teaching work during the school year, and then you know in the summer she really, really struggles uh, uh, to to stay out of depression herself and and to try to understand you know try to understand why this happened and, you know, how, how, you know, just, just the, the, the depression and pain that Eric Allen felt, she really, really struggles with that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not, it's good to talk about this, not for the sense of wanting sympathy from anyone, but for those who are affected by this to, to never forget how, how much, you're, you're, no matter what you feel or think your parents are thinking, um, the, the, the love your parents have for you is unbounded. And I'm glad you said that because, I mean, there's a lot of people who who will say that their parents and family turned their backs on them, which led them to, you know, thoughts of suicide. But the fact that you're saying, you know, that you embraced your child, but it wasn't because of that, you know, um, per 
why he committed suicide. You know, there were other underlying factors also that contributed to it. Was there? Yeah, yeah and so I, I, I mean, off of that, I just, I do want to say, um, we are mindful of the fact, and, and let me come from this perspective. We're, we're, I mentioned earlier that we're Catholic, and um, we are mindful of the fact that, yeah, it, it, it's a fact. I mean, I, I uh, that there are a lot of there are a lot of parents that are do not accept LGBT, and they do it for religious reasons or for personal reasons. I mean, I, I don't want to pretend that you know that doesn't exist. That's very real, and we're mindful of it. Um, you know, there's a group that um, I've gotten a little bit involved with called Listening Parents. It's associated, you know, with the Catholic Church, which, unfortunately, you know, for all the good it does, it it takes the wrong view uh, for, against the LGBT community, and that's I think I think that's well known, um, and uh, so un- that's an unfortunate reality. Um, the and I'll just share, you know, one reason why it's very clear to me. We we made, you know. A, we made a, a, a big mistake when Eric Allen was about in 10th grade. In fact, shortly after he came out to his friend and he was, you know, uh, betrayed and, you know, betrayed by many of his friends who were just fearful of the situation. I mean, he was, he was one of the most, he just growing up, virtually everyone he met really, you know, liked him and loved him. I like to say those who met him liked him and those those who knew him loved him because he was very empathetic and he always cared about other folks. And then he was thrown into this situation and it had nothing to do with him. It had everything to do with his his friends' fears and, and the fears of their, their peers. Uh, but what I want to say was what we did is try to get him out of that situation by moving into a Catholic school. And it was kind of naive of me thinking that, you know, there's goodness there and not realizing the reality of the fact that unfortunately there, there's this negative side of the Catholic religion that, you know, it puts a wall uh, up between, you know, the principles of the religion and, and the LGBT community. Um, and it's an unfortunate reality. That was a mistake we made. And so I want to acknowledge that. Um, and, and it, and that's a difficult challenge, but you know, there's people like me out and my wife that are are open to discussing that and uh, trying to help out. And I want to thank you for saying that um, and, and presenting it that way, because uh, I think a lot of parents and a lot of people don't know what to say, but you just elegantly did. So that uh, so definitely thank you for that. Now. Let's go back to, and, and this might, you know, I don't know if this is a topic that you want to talk about, but I know there's always a lot of pain, especially losing a child. It doesn't matter how old you are or how old they are, especially losing a child. With what happened in the 10 years that it ex- expanded over, do you think the relationship with you and your wife grew stronger because of what LVU thought might happen or because of the 
the the fact that he was your child and you know you two figured if nothing else you you had to be there as a bonded family for him. That you know that's a it's a very interesting question and um, let let me try to address it. Um, the I'll, I'll tell you what our hope was. You know, in in the time, in the year, I'll say the year or so after we lost Eric Allen, that this would bring us together. Uh, at, not, not my wife and I together more, and my daughters uh, together with our daughters. That was our our hope. And so, you know, I, I guess it you know sort of obviously the first couple of months we came very close. I mean, we were struck by this tragedy. We were all in it together. We were all supportive. And, you know, the immediate reaction is, is, to, is to get closer uh, and just bear the brunt of the pain together. And that happened. Now, as the months go by, you know, in the first couple of years, it, it, we did not come together like, you know, we, we kind of hoped. It, it was just very stressful. The, the, the internal pain, dealing with our own, you know, as I said, everyone grieves differently. Just dealing with your own internal grieving and trying to make sense out of it, uh, together with the fact that my wife and I are in Chicago and Christine's in Boston and Amy's in Toronto. We were far apart. Um, it, 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 we actually, I would say had some very difficult times that sort of came and went. Uh, and now it's five years later, and I think my wife and I, you know, look, we're, I count myself lucky that we are still together because it's a very difficult situation. But we're together, and, and we seem to be stronger now. And I think with our daughters, I mean, just the distance is difficult, but I think... Uh, things are actually healing a little bit now um, with our relationship with them. So, you know, that, that's kind of our story. I think it's probably different from everyone, but it's a very good question. And, and it's one of, you know, as a survivor, you know, Sean used the term, we are, the four of us are survivors of suicide. Um, I think we're, you know, I'll just say, I think we're fortunate to be as close as we are right now because um, I think it can go either way. Did you ever think back? Because you talked about um, no diagnosis. You know, no one gave you a diagnosis. So, were there ever points, point in times where you were like, had they diagnosed it? Had they? Did you second guess? I mean, because you said in the way you second guessed the decision of sending them to Catholic school. But were there other decisions, such as maybe not forcing someone to diagnose what it was prior to you getting one? Um, well i I guess I would just you know the last um the last incident uh which was you know several months before we lost him it was it was christmas time and and you know Christine Amy and Eric Allen all came to chicago we we were spending an extended Christmas vacation together there, and it was we we had some very tense situations where Eric Allen was not acting normal, was actually threatening us. And 
we had a, a very difficult decision to make, which was to basically institutionalize them at Northwestern. Uh, one of the most difficult decisions I've ever had to make, together with, with my family, because we knew as soon as we do that, you know, the, the, for him that's like uh, betraying him, like betraying him doing that, because he, he doesn't, did not want to admit he had issues. So, you know, we went there and we sat with him and we told him what's going on and they readily accepted him uh, at the time because if you say, you know, he's talking about harming himself or others, they're going to admit him. But then, you know, fast forward, he's there for five days and they're doing all this test and we're, you know, we're, we're trying to get in touch with the doctor to say this is a very serious situation and we, we want him to stay there and what's the next step and he, need, he needs help. He needs formal institutionalized help because he's depressed. Um, and, you know, it's impossible to communicate that to them. And they basically tell us, well, you know, what I said earlier, he, he, a little bit, you know, he has symptoms of, of, of personality disorder. He has symptoms of paranoia, various symptoms. But, you know, we can't diagnose him with any one specific thing. There, so, therefore, we cannot treat him. Uh, you know, if I had anything to do over, it would be, you know, somehow, some way, uh, you know, insist that he stay in there and get proper help. And I, you know, that's that's a regret. And, you know, I don't know if I can tell someone how to do it, but that would be my advice to someone. If you have the opportunity and uh, to get formal help and, and uh for your loved one, do everything you possibly can to to make sure you know to insist that they get the help. So, Eric. So, Eric, I guess one question to you. Um, and I think a lot of people say it's a forgiveness. Have you forgiven yourself for for, for you know? beating yourself up about things that you weren't in control of? Um, you know, in all honesty, uh, I would have to say that I don't think forgiveness would be the right word. Um, uh, I almost, you know, sometimes I think about the, you know, the, the sort of ongoing pain I don't ever want to get to the point where the pain is gone. I don't think it will ever go away. Um, and I don't think I will ever completely forgive myself for, you know, for things that I could have done. I, I, I want to say I don't beat myself up over it. I'm not one to do that. Um, I think my wife, on the other hand, struggles more with forgiving herself than I do. And, um, you know, I, I, the moment, there's a moment I all, I think about often and it's the last, my last moment with Eric Allen alive and it was on Chicago Avenue. We were dropping him off. Uh, he was staying at, at a, uh, a temporary housing facility there. And I, and I, you know, dropped him off and I got out of the car with him and gave him a big hug. And, and, and I said, Eric Allen, you know, you, you need to learn to love yourself. And he looked at me and and, sort, and, and said, yeah, I, I know. And then, you know, I hugged him and I, and I said, I love you. 
and, and that was my last moment with him. And, you know, when I think about that, I think, you know, there could be no truer statements than I could have said, that Eric Allen, you need to love yourself and that I love you on the one hand. On the other hand, those statements were so inadequate for the situation. And, you know, he needed to learn to love himself. He knew that. I knew that. I didn't know how to help him get there. And, you know, it's very apropos to our audience now that a lot of Eric Allen's depression and the, was driven by the fact that he, he was a gay young man and he faced some traumatic events. Uh, uh, and, you know, he's a young, he, he grew up as someone who was very open and very loving and very empathetic. And, uh, you know, I, I, we just needed to find a way to help him accept himself and love himself. And it, it's, um, that's the part that, you know, I don't know if it's uh, not forgiving myself, but it's something that I probably will always carry with me is helping him to learn to love himself. Okay. And I guess listening to your story for me, the fact that you were able to say that I love you probably said more than either one of us would could think, you know, to someone that, that maybe needed to hear it from his father. At the same time, you know, listening to you, and I kind of in a way wish we could talk to your wife, but mothers and fathers, you know, we're two different breeds. um, And like you said, it's probably harder for her. Um, And I think what you do with the foundation um, helps a lot. You know, I think it helps other people, but I think it still helps you, like you said, do something to help someone else not have to feel what you feel or help to, you know, them understand what it is that they're feeling. I, I appreciate you saying that because that, that is that is helpful. That's the one thing I can do is, you know, if, if one person can hear the message and help, you know, throw that life preserver to one other person at the right time, that, you know, that's the best thing that can happen at this point. So with the PowerPoint that you present, um, there are statistics in it, um, such as like in adolescents, 50% communicate their intent to family members. Um, in elderly, uh, 58 communicate their intent to primary care doctors. And at one point, you know, it it's like, and it's the last slide that you have. Um, mm-hmm. Well, actually, maybe not the last slide that you have. Uh, I went back just a little bit too far. Um, it's the one where you actually, before you talk about who can help, prevention may be a matter of a caring person with the right knowledge yeah. being available in the right place at the right time. Um, explain that. And I say the reason I say explain it only is because um, I'll be first to tell you. You know, if someone talks to me or tell me, you know, I think I'll commit suicide. I'm not sure if I'm the right knowledgeable person, but I'm sure that I'm the person that might would be like, wait a minute, red light, 
let's talk. And I know yep. I don't, yep. and I don't know that's what you mean. Yes, yeah, so I, I think what it means is this. I mean, first of all, being available in the right place at the right time, you know, that's sort of serendipity. I mean, we're, everyone should be on, on aware that someone might be reaching out and someone might be open. That's the right place and the right time. Uh, and that, you don't know when that's going to come and you don't know who it is, but, you know, the, the message is that, su- you know, suicide is a, is a real thing. I mean, Sean gave you the statistics. So be mindful. And, and, there's, and it, it's not all the time. There's just certain times when people say something, they're open to a talk and, uh, or whatever. It, it, it's, 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 um, you don't know when it's going to happen, but be ready. So, so it's then, it's, you know, the part that I think is a little bit difficult here is, you know, I think all of us are caring people. And, and if we can figure out the right time, we're ready to help. But it says the right knowledge. So the right knowledge is, is you know, sounds like, oh, you have to have some special training. Well, not really. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the, there's some very simple things that are obvious, and let me just say them so people realize. It's really there's three things. You know, there's three things you need to know. W- one is just what you, you said a minute ago, show you care. You know, if someone is showing a sign of depression, you know, they're angry. They've been drinking too much. They've been drinking more than usual. They're just acting differently. You know, they, they might even, you know, uh, you know, talk about suicide. But the very first reaction is your natural reaction. Just show you care. Acknowledge. Say, I hear you. That, that's the first thing. That's the first thing you need to know. The, the second thing you need to know is to go ahead and ask about suicide. You know, I think there's a there's a, a rumor, really, a, a sort of a conventional wisdom that, hey, you're not supposed to talk about suicide because maybe you'll give them the idea about it. But but that's not true. There's nothing at all wrong with asking. You know, ha, ha, have you been have have you been thinking about hurting yourself? And and that's it. Just ask. You don't give advice. You just listen. Then I mean, the most important thing is you know show you care then be open to listen. And then the last thing you need to know is get help. So, so if you've been caring with someone at the right moment and they actually opened up a little bit and now you know they have an issue, well, that, get help. And the get help is pretty, you know, first stop, 911. And then, you know, th- there's other stops too. I think Sean mentioned them. There's, there's a, a suicide hotline, uh, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is one 800 Two seven three T A L K, or you just Google suicide and that will come up, as as Sean said. So you know nine one one or that suicide prevention lifeline. Uh, so there you have it. Three simple steps. That's what you need to be knowledgeable of. You know, know you should care. Know it's okay to talk about suicide, and and then. If it's serious at that moment, then get help immediately. Don't leave the person. Stay with them. Call a number. And and mm-hmm. so that that's sort of what goes behind that. I really like that statement about it's just a matter of being a caring person with the right knowledge, being available in the right place at right at the right time. Um, that that's really for me. That's a you know that's the main message here. Um, and and I guess you know. 
let me just the, the right a little bit more about the right place and the right time. That's about you know just again we I think we we added this statistic before, but most suicides like over eighty percent are associated with people who are depressed, um, or have some sort of uh, you know mental uh, situation uh, and. You know the LGBT community, not not to directly link the two, but there there are there are an at risk community, and and um, so the the signs, for example, that go with depression. This is I think you know. Let me just state them. I think people are aware of them, but this is a thing about being in the right place at the right time. If if you see if you know someone who's been in a low mood and it's been that way for the last couple of weeks, talk to them. That's being in the right place at the right time. Someone who's been, you know, talking pessimistically. They're normally, you know, up, upbeat, and now they're talking pessimistically. Well, ask them why are you, you know, why are you, are you having this pessimistic attitude? Someone who is sort of hopeless about things, you know, they, and they're not normally. It, it, and that's being in the right place, recognizing this is a sign of depression. Someone who's, you know, withdrawing. That was Eric Allen. He withdrew from his friends. If you see someone who is a friend and you know, they're withdrawing from you or others, that's the time to say, you know, hey, what's going on? Um, so, so that's the other half of it is, you know, what's the right time? Well, it's when you see a mood change in someone. Uh-huh. Okay. okay. So there's some facts that you use um, in, in the PowerPoint. So I'm not sure if you have it in front of you uh, regarding, like, the second leading cause of death. Among college students. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other facts that people need to know? Uh, oh yes, yeah, so, so I mean, these the, some other facts just about the folks that are affected by suicide are you know are, are uh, important to know. So, second leading cause of death in ages 25 to 34. So, so young adults, second leading cause of death in young adults third leading cause in the 10 to 24-year range. Uh, in general, suicide is higher in males than in females. And it's highest of all in, in, in um, you know, eight, males over 85. And, you know, that's uh, for obvious reasons. Um, but I think some of the facts also that, that, um, that are kind of uh, sad, but, and, and, and surprising, and Sean mentioned a couple of these, suicide is more is twice as common as homicide. And and it's killed more than twice as many people as HIV and AIDS. Um, and and again the, the other you know overwhelming fact is that ninety percent of suicide victims suffer from depression, bipolar, alcohol schizophrenia, personality disorder, 90%. Now, those are, those are symptoms, and, you know, the root causes come from various places. But, uh, you know, and the one that my experience is grounded in is depression. Our son, you know, because of his, you know, the, his difficulty accepting himself or some of the traumatic events he lived through trying to, trying to you know, uh, Lived the life of a of a, a gay teenager. Uh, some of those 
difficult times. They they ultimately led to a uh, a deep depression that he couldn't escape. Um, so yeah, so those are some of the facts that are that I think are very important. Um, when I know you joined the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, what made you go to that particular organization? Well, again, I, so for me, it was a matter of I I was introduced to the to the out of darkness walk in Chicago. You know, as Sean said, it's the biggest suicide event uh, nationally. So once I was introduced to that, it was. Uh, they have a, you know, every year around about, around about February-ish, they have a volunteer event, and they reach out to anybody who's interested, and you go there and you learn, you learn what you can do and what needs they have, and, and that was a perfect fit for me. So for the, the two things that I liked about what, what the help that they needed, one is they needed folks to, to go to some of these uh, events, um, LGBT events or, or school events or what have you and just represent AFSP and, and talk to people. So that, that, was, that was a good way for me to just, you know, learn some of the facts and, and meet people. And then the other opportunity then was there, there, the AFSP focuses on outreach and, and helping teach people about suicide and what can be done about it. And that has everything to do with going out in front of groups and sharing your story. Uh, so that, that's, what, um, that's what interested me. We definitely have a great spokesperson, that's for sure. Uh, definitely. So, Eric, I noticed that, you know, and when, you, when you write, you know, when your wife wrote, uh, and when you talk, you call him Eric Allen. Um, was that how you addressed him always through childhood, all the way up until you know his adult life, or um, is that what you picked up or what you started calling him after um, his death? Oh yeah, that, um, um, thank you for asking that. Now we called you know his his name is his middle name is Allen, and so we for whatever reason we always called him Eric Allen. Uh, huh. It was uh, we named we, Alan was my best friend growing up, um, and he, he interestingly he was he, he had a difficult difficult uh, teenage years and after actually uh, I, I don't I don't know if there was any you know subliminal thing there but um, we always called him Eric Allen you know E A Eric Allen from from virtually from day one. Nice, nice. So, if I had, if I have parents listening, uh, if I have youth listening, if I have anybody listening, who, let's say, let's do it this way, if I have anybody who's listening that is thinking or has thought about suicide in the last two minutes, twenty-four hours, three days, six months. You know, year. What is it that you'd like to say to them at this moment, at this time? I I would say, first of all, if you ever had that thought, 
take it very seriously and talk to someone about it. And the second thing I'd say to them is never forget the folks that love you. Never forget that they do not want you, no matter what your pain is, and we know it's, you don't want to die, you want the pain to go away. No matter what your pain is, just hang on, think about them, think about those that love you, and go talk to someone. Now let's twist your hat to the other side. What would you say to the survivors? Uh, to the survivors, I, I, I would say everybody grieves differently. And there are, you have a lot of uh, survivors that are ready and willing and want to help. Uh, so don't hesitate to reach out to a survivor to talk. Um, and equally important, you know, if you take the opportunity to reach out to a survivor, not only are you going to be helping yourself, but you'll be helping them as well. There's nothing more that I would rather do than just listen to someone else's story because it helps me. I know it helps them to, to talk about it, but it helps me to be there to listen. Well, I want to take this moment um, to say I definitely want to thank you. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you would like to say and cover? Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I just want to, you know, thank you for the opportunity to share the story. Um, and uh, I re really appreciate it, um, being, being able to, to talk about my son and, and to talk about my family. And um, uh, thank you very much. Perfect, definitely. We appreciate you uh, for, for your openness, you know, for the honesty that you gave us, you know, um, letting us into into your life, you know, especially during that time, and and also giving information to people out there listening that something that you said might have touched on. So, like you said, if it, it's one person, you know, it, it's a good thing. You know, it's a good thing. So again, I want to tell you thank you um, for joining me this evening, and um, so Eric. We'll definitely be talking again with you, and probably definitely we'll see you at the walk. Yes, yes. I look forward to it. Okay. Thank you. Have a good evening. Okay. Thanks, Teresa. Bye-bye. So to the listening audience, um, this is a topic that you know, needs more conversation. Uh, and the reason I say it, because of the prevention part, um, you know, we can talk to friends. We, you know, we do know. Most people know of someone that lost someone to suicide, even if you know, or even maybe even thought about it. But to know there's an organization out here who's doing research, who's doing, you know, the legwork to um, 
to educate, you know, and to help. I think it's something that we can't turn our backs on, can't, you know, can't walk away from, you know. Um, we have to get involved because, like we've said tonight, it doesn't just affect the LGBT community, um, but that's a big part. Um, one thing that me and Sean weren't able to touch on, you know, was about the kids going back to school, especially our transgender youth um, who are at a different scale, you know, of suicide, you know, of uh, being targeted, um, you know, of the mental illnesses um, that have not been diagnosed because of health care. Um, so those are topics that when we come back, and hopefully we'll, we'll have them back in September, um, to really, really, you know, take the whole two hours and have that serious conversation. So, you know, uh, by the time maybe Empire or other pictures will be back, but this is a conversation we need to not have in the bars, you know, not have in the basement, not sitting at the kitchen table whispering. Um, it's something that we need to, to bring to the forefront everywhere. Um, and I'd love to see more intervention in the schools. Um, so it's an organization that definitely, you know, I'm going to push the people that I know, you know, let's take it to the school, you know, talk to kids, talk to parents, you know, talk to, you know, even talk to the homeless because they are people, you know, and they are at, at a state where, you know, depression is kicking in, because you know, because they're out, you know, by themselves. Um, you know, it, that's a hard time. It's got to be, fear, you know, a fearful time. So I want to say to my listening audience, you know, talk to your friends. Pay attention to the signs. Um, don't take it as a joke. Cyberbullying is a big thing right now, especially with social media. If you have a child, look at that page. If you have a child that is actually the bully, talk to them because there's a problem there also, and that's the side that we also need to, to look at and to... Um, Maybe think about you know what's going on, what's causing it. Can it? Can there be a prevention on that side? Um, so, for me and for Michelle, I like to say um, we thank you for joining us tonight you know, for the topic, and definitely want to see you again, same place, same time next week. And this is Terry signing off from Can We Talk for Real Block Talk Radio. Good night.